popping. Yo, it's your girl Gloria coming at you live. If you see a kid that's riding a bike two sizes too big for him, that's this little man trying to save the neighborhood. And speaking of saving the neighborhood, what's up with all these missing person flyers? Yo, check out the courthouse. They're turning it into apartments? Y'all know how this starts. Them white people with canvas bags? That's always the first sign. doing down here, bro? It's too late to fight back now. We are going to wipe you out like the vermin you are. We got vampires in the Bronx. Nobody gonna care that Slim disappeared? Why? Because he's a gangbanger? Nah, homie. Because he's from the Bronx. Like us. There's a lot of things happening in this neighborhood right now. Keep your eyes open. Right. Yo, that was mad vague, dog. What do you uh, do for work? Real estate. Are you seriously out at night when you know there's a couple of vampires running around? We're gonna need some garlic and some wooden steaks, like right the hell now. Going to the nest and take out every last one of them. One night with you guys and I already have vampires and thugs trying to kill me. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Fresh Cuts. I'm Mike, and with me, as always, it's Mr. Venom, Jerry Cortez. How are you doing? Greetings and salutations, vampire lovers. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing okay. The A's just lost another game one. I think the last time we were recorded, it was the wild card round game one that the Hebs lost. So I have that familiar feeling. Now it's the next round, and they've dropped game one, so... I'm kind of uh, not well, feeling it's best it. Of five, right? It's best of five. It is round. best of five, but so, I think there's some serious. stat that says like the game one winner goes on to win like seventy percent. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a given, especially in a five game series. But yeah. at least it's not a three game series. I mean, losing game one in a three game series, holy shit, that's like yeah, <laughs> that's awful. I just yeah, it just sucks dropping game one because then it instantly makes makes it feel like game two. There's like no margin for error. Yeah, basically the A's have to play two game sevens. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but, you know, we'll see. The game two's tomorrow, so I could be over fast, or I could be feeling even worse. <laughs> All right, and then joining us, almost as always, he's back after just having a one-episode hiatus, Don and Nelly. How are you doing, Don? Hey, what's going on, folks? <clears throat> yeah, uh, great to be back in the... Uh, well, you know, finally able to catch the film this time, so uh, doing good. Cool, cool. Well, today we are discussing a movie on Netflix. I, I, I don't know if this is a Netflix original. It has like a little Netflix tag on it, so it it says a Netflix film, but yeah, I think it's close enough to count. I mean, it's kind of like yeah, Shutter with their originals versus exclusives. I mean, it's kind of like how Shutter with their originals versus exclusives. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm good enough with calling this an original. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Uh, well, it's. <laughs> I looked it up while you guys were talking about it. It, it. It's 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 basically one of those Netflix exclusives. Um, oh. They didn't have. Uh, they're they're only listed as a distributor, not a producer on the movie. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a Broadway video production uh, distributed by Netflix. 
which is, you know, probably like 75% of the stuff that we see as Netflix exclusives, it usually falls under that category. Uh, yeah. Good enough for me, so. <laughs> All right, well, the movie I'm actually referring to is titled Vampires vs. the Bronx, listed as comedy horror, 125 minutes, PG-13, released October 2nd. 2020 and the synopsis goes as follows a group of young friends from the bronx fight to save their neighborhood from gentrification and vampires all right i was gonna say i, I was like should i even read that but it's all right okay so we will start with um, i kind of think they're i kind of think that they're gonna deal with vampires um just call it a hunch from the title yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that's exactly. the title's the biggest spoiler of all. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't really the, <laughs> the vampires part. It's more the gentrification because oh. while it's uh, not, we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, Venom, we'll start with you as always. General thoughts on vampires versus the Bronx. All right. Well, unfortunately, folks, I did not enjoy this movie. Um, I'm not going to say I hate it. Um, it did kind of bounce back for me a little bit in the third act. There was a little bit more actual horror action. Um, but ultimately, folks, this is a family-oriented um, vampire horror comedy, if you will. Um, you know, there's no blood. There's literally not a drop of blood in this movie. Most of the kills are off-screen. The ones that are on-screen are just bites. And um, then, quick and then question. We get... There is a drop of blood when she raises her fingernails up after killing the clerk. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. I I just got it. We don't even get to it. see it too. God yeah. damn. I mean, it's that's from... the only kill that could have been juicy. I I guess the yeah. familiar too, but I, I'm I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit here. Yeah. But, um, I, I yeah. Know. Yeah. I was debating Over... about jumping in, but. Still. <laughs> uh, overall, yeah, fairly fairly bloodless movie for a vampire flick. Uh, fairly uninspired design on the vampires. I mean, it's it's no design that we haven't seen before. They look like Twilight vampires with maybe a little bit more makeup on them. That's about it. Um, they all wear black leather, so they all look like they're right out of Blade. Um, and Blade is actually referenced in this film in one particular scene where they're apparently watching the movie backwards, but we'll get into that later. Um, I, I just thought the writing in this movie was so dull, and like all the jokes are, well, jokes in quotations. Because the main thing, my biggest gripe with this movie is going to be that it's a horror comedy that is neither funny nor scary. I did not chuckle once throughout this entire movie. I smiled at one thing at the very end of the movie. Um, and as far as actual scares, no. There's no tension. There's very little tension anyway. Um, maybe one scene later in the movie where, you know, um, our heroes find the vampire nest or den if you will um is a pretty decent scene very reminiscent of the lost boys if you remember the scene where you know the frog brothers found uh the vampires and the lost boys it's very similar to that scene um some of the writing in here like i said it's just so cliche um they i don't know if they thought they were being original or funny but like some of the stuff like there's actually a line in here saying, uh, we've got vampires in the Bronx. It's like, oh, really? I, I, I think my soul dialed a little bit when uh, that line was spoken. 
Um, you, we get the old uh, comics versus graphic novels gag, which is so fucking dumb and cliche at this point. But somehow here we are watching a 2020 movie and it, it's prominently in there. Like it's some kind of original joke. One of the boys is so goddamn annoying. I mean, this movie really is the Losers Club, but against vampires instead of uh, Pennywise. I mean, you've got you've got the one kid who's like the smart one, the street savvy one who kind of knows what's going on and is kind of the leader of this whole thing. You've got the one kid who's like the wannabe thug who thinks he's a lot tougher than he actually is. And then you've got the uh, the comic relief kid who's the bumbling idiot who usually has asthma, but in this movie, he has low blood sugar. So, of course, he has to have something wrong with them to give us some kind of comedic, or at least an attempt at a comedic uh, scene. You know, in this case, you know, rather than him having an asthma attack, it's him passing out from low blood sugar. Uh, just very not funny to me. Um, what else can... Uh, I will say the soundtrack is probably the best, my favorite part of the movie. I don't want to say best, um, but my favorite part of the film was the soundtrack. And that's mostly because they've got a lot of like Afro-Cuban jazz kind of stuff playing, um, Dominican music, Puerto Rican music, a lot of the kind of stuff that you'd hear in the Bronx. Even though the majority of the people in this film are black, the soundtrack is very Hispanic. So you get that little bit of dichotomy there. There are Hispanic characters here. Don't get me wrong. Um, obviously, our main character seems like he's half Hispanic. Um, his mom is obviously very Hispanic. Luis, the uh, the kid with the blood sugar issue, is also 100% Hispanic. But I just, like I said, as I'm watching this movie, it's like, the writing was so just heavy-handed and on point. The first time we meet Luis, he's reading Salem's Law. Ugh, I fucking rolled my eyes at that instantly. I'm like, Jesus Christ, what is going on? And then these kids are trying to put together a um, block party to save uh, one of uh, the bodega, which is basically a little convenience store in the Bronx, and we hear this DJ, the, the voice of this radio DJ, kind of talking smack about the block party. You know, oh, good luck, boys. You're going to need it to save that neighborhood. It's like, what the fuck kind of DJ would do that? This isn't the DJ from the Warriors, you know? This is fucking modern day. It just, it, it just grated on me. Um, what else? The inconsistency of the fucking vampires. First, in the, in the very first scene that we have a vampire attack, we see a vampire fly, you know, um, levitate, if you will. And then there's a scene later on where the boys find the nest where the vampires don't fly. They actually run after the boys, and if they would have flown, they would have fucking caught them. But, so this is just a, an example of R2-D2 logic. Suddenly, the vampires can fly, then they can't fly, and then at the end of the movie there's a big confrontation, and suddenly they can fly again. So, again, inconsistencies with the vampire lore. Boring vampires, by the way. Some of the most boring vampires I've ever seen. Um, uninspired vampire design. Uninspired costume design for the vampires. Um, uninspired motivation. I mean, this whole thing with uh, gentrifying the Bronx so that you can feed without... Uh, you know, repercussions or without police interactions, I guess. Kind of like the uh, like last week with Spiral. 
um, where, you know, the cult was picking marginalized groups because they could get away with murdering them. Pretty much the same thing here. You know, vampires decide they're going to take over the Bronx and they figure they can get away with it because no one cares about people from the Bronx, which is such a broad fucking statement to make, especially for a minority director. Uh, it's just a broad sh Just, wow. It, it, it almost hurts me to, to, to hear that line. Oh, they don't care about us because we're from the Bronx. That's not fucking true at all. But, again, I digress. Um... Uh, I've already talked about. I've already spoken about the mostly bloodless kills, the mostly off-screen kills, um, the fact that one of the parents in this movie, throughout the first half to two-thirds of the movie, is being told that there are vampires in the Bronx, and she's basically, "Oh, stop it! You're being dumb. You know, you're seeing things. Blah blah blah." But then there's a scene later on where the mom has one interaction with a bloodsucker and instantly she's like all right we're, we're leaving the bronx it's like wow you jumped you flipped on a dime and the thing is is that what she saw in that scene most adults would still question it they wouldn't just instantly be like oh she's a vampire we're out of here they would have tried to explain it away uh you know they would have tried to you know whatever the case may be she just turned on a dime so quickly that it was and she's a hispanic mother uh, listeners, I'm Hispanic, and I know for a fucking fact my mother wouldn't flip on a dime like that, even if she saw what this mother saw in that scene. So just more suspension of disbelief that completely takes me out of the movie. But then the third act comes, and like I said, the third act for me was mildly enjoyable because there was some decent action. There was homages to other movies, like I already mentioned The Lost Boys. There was homages to Nosferatu and Dracula throughout the film. Some of them, again, very heavy-handed. The name of the real estate company was Murnau. Uh, come on, really? F.W. Murnau, for those who don't know, directed the original uh, Nosferatu, the black and white silent classic. And their fucking logo is the most famous drawing of Vlad the Impaler. It's literally the standard image of Vlad the Impaler. That was their logo, and nobody fucking questioned it in the whole goddamn movie. If you're going to tell me that an entire borough of New York is unfamiliar with who Vlad Tepish is, I call absolute bullshit on that. I know plenty of minority horror fans who know who F.W. Murnau is and who know who Vlad the Impaler is and what he looks like. So, like I said, there's just so much suspension of disbelief in this movie that I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't bring myself to enjoy it. The movie has an audience, definitely. It's just not me, because like I said, this is a horror comedy that is neither scary nor funny, and I can't see myself recommending it or even ever bringing myself to watch it again. The performances aren't bad. Ultimately, the acting isn't bad. It's all about the writing and just some of the filmmaking choices that they made. But I will say the two things that the movie does really well, I already mentioned the soundtrack, uh, the other thing is the cinematography. The movie opens up with some gorgeous sunset shots of the Bronx. And throughout the film, there's some really nice, like, top-to-bottom shots, you know, from up above and some other really nice cinematic choices. So this is now the third week in a row where I can praise the movie for its filmmaking, but I can't praise its story. It just left me wanting so much more. 
Um, yeah. And ultimately, and the thing is, too, is that this is supposed to be a family-oriented vampire comedy, but it's like, um, I don't know, like, there was nothing whimsical about it. Like, it wasn't, I don't think, I think family-oriented might be a misnomer. I think it's more a teenage vampire movie, because the things that these teens are doing, you know, they're staying out late, blah, 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 it's not exactly the kind of thing you'd see in a family um, horror film, but it just, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm going to stop now because I could probably harp for another hour to two hours on the issues that I had with this movie. Um, but ultimately this is for me, this is going to be a, a, a not recommend. I can't recommend this to people who like comedies. I can't recommend this to people who like vampires. I can't recommend this to people who like movies set in New York. Because I lived in the Bronx. I lived in the South Bronx for, for one summer with my aunt in, um, yeah, it, like I said, in the South Bronx, down near like 186th Street, like that area. And this movie doesn't even feel like the Bronx to me. It, it barely feels like, like New York. Uh, a lot of it feels like it's shot on a set. It doesn't feel, it doesn't have the the aura of New York. And I know it's easy for me to say, cause I've been to New York and for a lot of people who've never been there, they may not know kind of what I'm talking about, but if you do know what I'm talking about, then this movie just becomes more and more disappointing. Um, you know, from, like I said, from its filmmaking, from its, uh, storytelling, it just, ha, the movie needed more. And I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that for now. <laughs> All right, Don, are you uh, going to echo everything, or do you have a different opinion? Um, Let's I find most, out. <laughs> I most certainly have a different opinion, because for once, I'm higher than Venom, and not recreationally. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I knew for a fact that this is a kid-friendly film, so I went in with the expectations knowing that it's not going to be a gore fest. There's going to be, you know, a lot of heavy-handed material designed for kids. Um, I had no problem staying invested in it. I actually enjoyed, you know, the, I enjoyed the trio. I liked their interactions together. Um, I, I will echo his clichédness because I do think that even though... Okay, the one thing that I have an issue with is... They know enough to know a vampire when they see one, but yet they still need educated on what vampires can actually do and how to defeat them. Yeah. Yeah, that was my one issue is that, okay, you, you know, he spots the guy without having a reflection in the convenience store mirror. And all of a sudden he knows, okay, we've got vampires in the Bronx. Then they need educated from their friend on what vampires actually are. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense. <laughs> yeah, like I said, that was the one. That was the one issue that really stuck out with me. Um, I, I, like I said, I do realize that there are cliches in here. I do. I, I'm aware that they are. They're just, you know, it's a kid-friendly film. It's not supposed to be for people like us that know Lost Boys enough to quote their, <laughs> to you know, quote the the comic book scene by heart. You know, it's not for people like us. It's for, you know, a family looking to introduce their kids to a horror villain in a safe-ish safe, safe, in, safe -ish environment, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
so yes, I fully expect there's going to be cliches here about hunting them down, trying to get the, you know, trying to get the parents on their side. You know, are they going to believe us? Are they not? That stuff doesn't really bother me. I'm aware that they're there. It's just okay. You know, this is the kind of movie that you need that sort of a thing to build its storyline for. And enough to the most part that I wasn't really turning it off or really like in disgust about what was going on. I I do wish that there would have, that there is more of like a, you know, horror fan cut of this that has a little bit more violence, a little bit more gore that we actually get to see some of the attacks because for the first couple, I was kind of like, Oh man. But then once I was like, all right, yeah, okay. That's going to be the kind of film this is, you know, I rolled with it. And I think that's the thing that, you know, listening to him and listening to Venom and his critiques, I think that's the, the sort of thing that you have to realize is that you, once you realize that this is for a younger audience than most horror fans that are going to be listening to this, if you're aware of that and you're mindful of it, I think you can enjoy it on that level. I mean, you know, there's a lot of it here that a lot of us as horror fans are going to like roll their eyes at, you know. Ugh, another film where they confuse, you know, vampires with familiars. Ugh. Mm. You know, <laughs> you know, nobody, nobody spotted that. Come on. Or, you know, the parents don't believe the video cassette. And then all of a sudden somebody says, well, vampires don't have reflections. Of course, they're not going to show up like seriously. But if you're still mindful of what this type of film is and the limitations that are going to be built into it because of that, you know, naturally, the kids are never going to be in any danger. You're never going to really have any kind of suspense or tension with whether or not they're going to be killed or not. Okay, yeah, that can take a little bit of the sting out of this. But, you know, if you're going into this aware of what kind of film it is, it's a fun ride. And, you know, it's not a kid-friendly film like a Disney Channel or a Nickelodeon effort because I've seen those. And I'm a fan of some of them myself. But... If you're willing to move past that, this is a good stepping stone, and I think it's a worthwhile recommend for the younger crowd. And I don't mean younger like, you know, the five to six-year-old. I do think Venom is right more for, I would say, the ten-ish and older crowd. So, yeah, if you're someone like that that has a kid that you're trying to introduce to the genre for the holiday season, I think you can do far worse than this. You know, if, you know, you're our age and you're wanting to throw it on by yourselves just because you're interested in it, I think you're going to sound more like Venom than me. But if you're mindful of what's going on in here, I think you're going to come out on my end more than he is. I didn't have a problem with this necessarily being a tame, family-oriented horror film. I had a problem with the weak writing. The writing in this is so heavy-handed and so tongue-in-cheek at times that it's painful. Like, and I, I, <laughs> I, I agree. I do. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, like you said, a lot of it is geared towards making sure that's brought to the forefront because they, the kids need to know what they're dealing with in order to stop them. And, yes, I do agree that there's a lot of cliches in here, a lot of heavy-handed writing, but... For some reason, it wasn't much of an issue, and I'm totally fine that that's where this kind of film is going to go. So, 
I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just more that I was, you know, I mean, for me, maybe it's because I spent most of my teen years babysitting with my sister and watching this kind of stuff after I'd watched my kind of movies with them. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for me to babysit them and throw on demons and then turn on Wizards of Waverly Place. So, I don't know. <laughs> hey, Wizards of Waverly Place wasn't a terribly written show. No, of course not. It's still one of my <laughs> favorite. That's what I mean. Yeah. Well, like I said, that's why I brought it up. It's my favorite Disney Channel show. Of yeah, all that's time. valid. I mean, I I don't I I've, I've never watched it regularly, but I've seen a couple of episodes and they were mildly enjoyable. So. Oh, um, yeah. The. I'm not a huge fan of the last season, but the first two or three are very, very good. Oh, I'm not and even sure what I saw. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you can tell just based on how old they are, but yeah, like I said, um, you know, maybe because I'm, you know, I spent a lot of my time in the, you know, working and being around kids that age. Maybe I have a higher tolerance and I'm more accepting, but. No, like I said, I do agree. If you're looking at this as a as a seasoned hardcore horror fan who's just looking for something to put on because, you know, it's that time of year and you you want to watch a horror film, I do believe that you're going to sound that you're going to come out of the film sounding like you. Yep. I do. And, I, and I, I, I firmly believe that. I firmly yeah, believe and, that. And I think part of it, too, as everyone knows, as I've said a million times before, I don't watch trailers. I don't read synopses. I kind of count on Mike. When he, when he picks a movie, I count on him having seen the trailer or read a synopsis or something. Um, so, like I said, yeah, admittedly, I had no idea this was a family movie going into it. No idea whatsoever. But I, ultimately, I don't have a major problem with the how tame the movie is. Because, like I said, there is an audience for this movie. There's absolutely an audience for this movie. Um, just like Don said, that transitional stage when you're moving from, you know, Disney-type horror but you're still not quite ready for, you know, Maniac and New York Ripper, this is a nice middle ground for the teenage crowd that maybe isn't quite ready for the ultra-gory horror yet. So yeah. I, I agree that there's a market for this. I'm just not it. And, right. you know, I'm still, you know, I, I said this to Neil Lemoy when he was on here for Open 24 Hours. I have to look at these movies, you know, with a critical eye. I'm reviewing them. I feel like if I go into them and I shut my brain off that I'm doing a disservice to the listeners. You know, obviously I'm not the be-all, end-all of film critiquing by any stretch of the imagination, but I still have to be honest with what I experienced. And the movie isn't terrible. It's just I did not enjoy it. Um, I, I, like I said, it's just so cliche. It's like at every turn we see another trope that we've already seen. Um, you know, be it, like I said, the comic versus graphic novel gag, the, you know, talking about the rules. I mean, they live in a world where Blade, the movie exists, yet they have to go to Luis, uh, like Donnie was saying, they have to go to their, their resident vampire expert. When when everything that Luis went over is discussed in Blade, which is which they just watched, yeah, so, yeah, it's just like I said, it's just inconsistent. The movie doesn't like pick a path and go with it. Like I said, between the inconsistent flying and non-flying vampires, between the what I consider atrocious writing, I know many people are going to disagree with me, and that's fine. But to me, atrocious writing. I mean, Mike. You know, earlier in the day, Mike was talking about stuff like Hocus Pocus and the witches. 
I'd rather watch Hocus Pocus 50 times before I watch this movie again, because at least Hocus Pocus was moderately original. It's moderately fun. It's legitimately funny at some times. It's not, it's not bust a gut funny by any stretch of the imagination, but if you grew up with it, you have the rose-colored nostalgia glasses. This movie... And it was the only time Sarah Jessica Parker was hot. Yeah, I'll go with that. <laughs> uh, I thought she was all right in uh, Honeymoon in Vegas. What was the uh, Wild at Heart? Was that her or was that an Arquette? Uh, that was, that was Laura Dern, wasn't it? Oh, you that? might be right. That, that might be Laura yeah. Dern, yeah. Uh, the Peach Girl, the girl named Peach, whatever, yeah. Yeah, I think that was Laura Dern. Okay, you're probably right. I I only seen it the one time in yeah, theaters, so forever. <laughs> yeah, I saw it once years ago. So. All right, Mike, what do you got? All right, well, <laughs> I, I kind of agree with... Venom, your criticisms, but I also kind of agree with Don. I'm kind of like in the in the same spot as Don as if you're looking at this movie through the lens of the audience it was it's probably intended for, you probably come out thinking higher of it. Whereas if uh, you're looking at like Venom is just completely objectively as like how he's you know what he thinks of the movie, you'll You'll probably think of it a little lower. For me, um, I just threw it on because it made, like the basic synopsis, like basically a group of kids fighting monsters. I got kids. Uh, my youngest is still pretty young, but my oldest is approaching 10. I mean, she's she's going to be nine in January, but she's kind of getting to that age where stuff like this. And like I said, this was a, like it wasn't disney tame but it wasn't like crazy graphic there was nothing really in this that i was like doubting her being able to see she's pretty good at being able to handle stuff um and maybe because of having kids that sometimes when i watch stuff like this i see through the lens of like their enjoyment or non-enjoyment of stuff um to me the biggest movie or the biggest mistake that this movie made was um trying to do all that uh, subtext with gentrification and that's not me criticizing uh, like movies in general tackling stuff like that i've made it clear on many episodes i'm i'm all for social commentary and subtext it doesn't bother me at all and i think it's well done in many places the problem with it in this movie is if if you're making a semi kids movie i mean my daughter's not gonna know what the hell landed because obviously the vampires in this are a uh, allegory for gentrification, basically outsiders coming into the neighborhood, taking over, pushing the people out that are already there. It's uh, now I do feel like they they went uh, more heavy handed on it in the first half of the movie, where at least in the second half, third act, and there might be instances where it was like still, you know, being pushed, but I felt like at least second half, third act, they at least was like, okay, now we're going to make it up you know more straight up like neighborhood or kids versus vampires i think they were obviously you know going for like a little mix of lost boys and attack of the block if everyone i know everyone remembers attack the block is five times the movie this well (laughs) i don't i don't think this is obviously as good as either one of those probably not even half as good those are just excellent movies i don't care what age you are you know so obviously those are in their total own realm of just awesomeness but I just think as far as tropes and the general idea, this is, you know, it's basically your group of kids um, 
defending the neighborhood because the adults aren't, at least at first, you know, and they're on their own because no one believes them. Uh-huh. Lots of tropes that we've seen before, but I think that's the thing. Like, I think that that's part of the point was Dawn is bringing up, like, uh, my, my, my daughter, she hasn't seen Lost Boy. She hasn't seen, you know, 50 years of vampire movies. So for her watching this, now, maybe in 10 years from now, if she is interested and goes back and watches stuff, she'll be like, oh, you know, all this stuff was doing this stuff way before this. But for her perspective now, you know, it was just a movie about kids fighting off vampires in their neighborhood. I think on that level, it works as a movie. I think uh, for the most part, I think Venom's right. It's not particularly scary. The comedy's not like laugh out loud at all times. I think there's the writings, what it is. It, it's a very light movie in those aspects, but I think if that's what the movie was trying to be, then so be it. I mean, you know, like not every movie is going to be like a hard R vampire movie. Um, was the writing great? No, I mean, I would probably have to watch it a second time just to like really analyze the writing. I thought the perform like I, I thought all the performances were good. It was kind of interesting seeing like Method Man as the preacher, mm-hmm. um, or pastor, Red. whatever. Yeah. Chris Red was in there. Uh, so there were some pretty cool like cameos that I had no idea because I didn't look up too. Much. I I didn't watch the trailer. Um, actually, I just kind of knew the synopsis, and I think because like uh, it came out October second, which was a handful of days before i watched it there was a couple things i saw on social media there's people talking about it it was kind of mixed there were people that liked it there was people that didn't so i was like let me see um what i recommend i mean i would say if you're kind of like my situation you got kids and you're looking for something for them to watch that's not too rough but it's a little edgier than you know what they might be watching at that age i would say you know maybe watch it with them and kind of see how it goes. But, uh, I, you know, I had fun with it and I can't disagree with like the majority of flaws that Venom points out. That's the thing. And I think, I think to his point that this is definitely one of those movies where there's probably a specific audience for this. And he's perfectly valid in saying he's not that audience. I could very well, like, let's say this movie came out 10, 15 years ago when I was like, you know, whatever I was a upper twenties, maybe, um, no kids, no nothing. And I saw like a trailer for this. I could easily say that at that time I would have skipped on, skipped right by. I mean like, nah, not for me. Um, so given my situation, maybe that's why I even like seeked it out to begin with hard to say, but you know, even as, uh, old jaded adults as we are, sometimes you, you might uh, always give a chance a movie where the synopsis has to do with like kids banding together to fight monsters, right? I mean, it's not outside the realm of possibility that you would be like, okay, I'll, I'll at least give it a try because that's kind of a cool thing. But um, as far as general thoughts, that's probably it. I mean, you guys both said, had a lot to say, which, you know, I agree kind of with both of you guys <laughs> on it. So I think this is one of those movies where it's really going to be – uh, depending on what kind of movie you are looking to watch, and that's that could determine how much you like it or not. 
Yeah. Oh, and so, I have so many more problems, too, that I haven't spoken about yet. I'm probably not even going to get to all my problems, because I have so many little nitpicky things. You know, like Miguel's bravery. Miguel is the bravest fucking kid in the Bronx. He will continuously look for vampires by himself, knowing full well they will fucking kill you for no reason. And he continuously... I mean, it's like the kid at a death wish. I even have it in my notes. I think Miguel wants to die because he just continuously tries to separate himself from his friends and his family because he thinks he's a fucking superhero. And it's just so hard to believe. Like I said, if I was actually 12 years old, maybe I would have, you know, kind of uh, supported Miguel or thought that he was a cool character. Um, But it's just so unbelievable that a 13-year-old kid from the Bronx is willing to go after Lord knows how many vampires by himself, knowing full well how strong they are, you know, uh, how long they've lived, just everything. Even the fact that they can fly, because he saw during the very first vampire attack a flying vampire. So it's like, that was just yet another of the hundreds of things that took me out of this movie is... What you know? It makes no sense that Miguel is that fucking brave. I know we have to we have to move the plot forward. You know we can't spend too much time with Miguel developing a set of balls. I understand that, but then it just seems even less um, believable that he's that he's fucking Rambo when it comes to vampires. I just don't get it. And God, the final fight too. Oh, so many fucking problems with the final battle. Uh, that obviously I'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, um, again, for like the third week in a row, it sounds like I really, really hate the movie, and it's just that it doesn't work for me. Uh, For the third week in a row, I feel like we got some pretty weak writing. Spiral was probably the best of the last three weeks as far as writing goes and storytelling. Um, But even that one left me a little flat. It's, I don't know... Um, you know, once again, another movie that could have had really important social commentary, and then it just kind of abandons it. Like, it just kind of abandons the whole gentrification thing. You know, it's like a major point of the first half of the movie, but once the vampires are exposed, it, it's just forgotten about. It's like, nope, don't care anymore about the neighborhood. Now we're just out to kill. And then, of course, the neighborhood is out to defend themselves, blah, blah, blah. That's what I mean. I mean, when, if if you want to see a movie where, you know, uh, a low-income neighborhood comes together and, you know, fights uh, whatever, uh, uh, an alien horde or, you know, a foreign horde, Attack the Block is ten times better than this movie, uh, both in its writing and its acting and its effects. Uh, really, there's nothing this movie does better than Attack the Block. And this is a fucking universal movie. I thought this was low budget at first. This is fucking universal. And this is what they give me? I, I'm i just not happy. Like I said, maybe if I had watched the trailer, I would have been a little bit more prepared for what I was getting into. But like I said, I don't have a major problem with the fact that this is a family movie. I don't. I love family movies. I watch cartoons all the time, for fuck's sake. I hate how cliche and stupid the writing in this movie is. I, I just I can't forgive it. Yes, there's an audience for this movie, and yes, there might even be some adults that might enjoy this, you know, do the whole shut your brain off thing. But unfortunately, Mr. Venom is not capable of shutting his brain off and watching a movie, especially if it's for fresh cuts. I gotta watch it with critical eyes, and yeah, I, uh, 
<laughs> man, this movie. I don't know. Can we have a rule? No more family-oriented horror movies. Because <laughs> honestly, what? Who? The only listeners that are listening to this show right now who might actually go out and watch this are parents. Parents with young kids, because they can introduce their kids to a very tame, or at least a mildly tame, vampire movie and kind of get them familiar with the lore and the mythology and everything else. So it is, I mean, if anything, it's more an educational tool than anything else. I, I can't say that it's a good movie. Um, it's a well-put-together movie, but that's about the best I can say. And I do love the, uh, a lot of the performances are great, and I especially loved our uh, Creole girl. Uh, I forgot her name. Uh, the girl that Miguel was kind of... Rita? Was that Rita? Yeah, I yeah, that's her. Yeah. I liked her character a lot, especially after we found out who she really was and, like, what she had been prepared for. Like, it, it, I, I really enjoyed her character. Um, Frank wasn't bad for the familiar, obviously. I mean, they were so heavy-handed with it, you know he's a familiar. I mean, even, even in the one of the first scenes that we see with Frank where he closes the blinds and he makes a comment about the morning sun, it's still fucking obvious you're a familiar. You know, I mean, we saw it in Fright Night. Um, oh God, Fright Night. See, that's a movie that this movie wishes it was. Now, obviously, Fright Night's not family-oriented, but that's a horror comedy that's legitimately funny, legitimately scary, great kills, great monster design, just about great everything. That is the blueprint for vampire horror comedies. This movie, unfortunately, like I said, if you got kids, watch it with them, because maybe you'll get enjoyment out of their enjoyment, like Mike mentioned. Watching your kids like something that falls within the horror realm, you know, gives parents, you know, a nice squishy feeling inside. That's cool. But ultimately, if you're like me, just a jaded old horror fan that doesn't have any kids in his life, I would avoid this movie at all costs. Just go watch Lost Boys. Or, or uh, Attack the Block. <laughs> but that's just me. Well... Definitely, I would recommend those other movies over this. I mean, I would never say, hey, skip or like watch this one over yeah. those. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I guess that wraps up my general thoughts. So if, uh, Don, you're ready, I guess we can get into spoilers. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I didn't I didn't take many notes for this movie because it, when, when I when a movie frustrates me this much, I tend to not take as many notes as I should. So. Once again, before I get into the walkthrough, disclaimer, I may miss a lot because I spent, I don't know, probably a good 10 to 12 minutes rolling my eyes, so I probably missed a lot. So uh, so here we go. Vampires versus the Bronx. Our movie opens up with a pretty young white woman coming out of a taxi cab, and she is walking towards a Dominican beauty salon. Uh, they show uh, the neighborhood surrounding the beauty salon. There are multiple buildings that have been closed and boarded up. And then, you know, we get that Murnau Properties uh, logo pretty much throughout the entire film. Right at the beginning, too, it's on the taxi cab that actually drops off the woman at the nail salon. Um, she walks in and she meets Becky, the owner-manager of the establishment, who is uh, probably the biggest name in this movie. It is actually played by Zoe Saldana, 
Most people would know her as Gamora from the MCU, the Marvel movies, and she's also the main female protagonist in the Avatar movies. I say movies because we're going to be getting five of them eventually. I know there's only one out now, but yeah, she's the main female uh, Navi, I think they were called, in, um, in uh, Avatar. So. so yeah, so we meet Becky. Uh, she's taking care of this white woman, doing her nails. Um, and she basically relays a story that you're actually going to be my last customer because I'm selling the building to, you know, the, the property uh, company that's going around buying everything. They're, they're basically offering uh, more than uh, the property value of the establishment. So they're basically overpaying for these properties, which is why everybody's so willing to sign away their properties. Um, and then at the end of her doing uh, this woman's nails, uh, the woman walks out thanking Becky. And as she walks out, in walks Frank. Um, Frank, uh, we later find out, of course, is uh, working for the uh, vampires in a, in, as a familiar role. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But Frank basically walks in uh, with all the paperwork that he has ready to uh, finalize the sale of Becky's um, Dominican Beauty Salon to the Murnau Properties uh, Corporation. As soon as Becky signs the document and it's all signed, sealed, delivered, it's all legal, um, instantly Frank's kind of demeanor changes and he starts to ask Becky, well, now you and your husband will be, you know, set for life. And Becky's instantly, I don't have a husband. I don't even got a boyfriend. I don't need a man. And you can see Frank's kind of expression change like, ah, so it's just you here, right? And instantly at that moment, we see someone walk out of the back room of the beauty salon towards Becky. We see what looks like a very vampiric hand, you know, pale, white, very long fingers and fingernails. Uh, basically grab Becky by the shoulder. She looks up and screams, and we go to our title card, Vampires versus the Bronx. Uh, once the opening credits are over, we meet Miguel, who is out um, putting out flyers for a block party that he's planning to try to save the bodega um, because all the property is getting bought out in the neighborhood. Uh, the businesses that are still there are raising their rent. Uh, so Tony who is the owner of the bodega, recently had his rent raised, and unfortunately he can't afford it. Um, so the kids in the neighborhood are doing a charity block party where people can come to the neighborhood, make donations directly to the store, maybe you know patronize the store a little bit, buy a few things, blah, blah, blah. They're basically just trying to save the bodega because this is a place where these kids kind of indirectly grew up like um, all these kids are basically latchkey kids all their parents work so there's no adults in the house when they get home from school so they tend to spend most of their time at the bodega um after we meet miguel we then meet uh bobby who is uh it seems like it's miguel's best friend bobby is the kid i mentioned earlier who was um you know, kind of the street tough kid, um, the wannabe thug, if you will. Miguel is like the intelligent one, the one who kind of knows what's going on, uh, always has a plan. Like, like I said, he's the ultra brave kid I mentioned earlier. Uh, like I said, we meet, um, what was his name, Bobby? Yeah, Bobby. And uh, they start walking around the neighborhood, looking at some of the businesses that have been boarded up. And they actually walk by uh, Becky's beauty salon, 
which wasn't boarded up the night before, but now the next morning it's boarded up. There's signs for Renault Properties all over it. Don't forget, I mentioned earlier that the logo for Renault Properties is fucking Vlad Tepish, the most famous picture of him that exists. So, again, it just really bothers me. And it especially bothers me that um, the girl later on doesn't mention that either. But we'll get to that later. Um, once we kind of get a reveal of who this girl actually is. Um, so then after that, we kind of get some just shots at night. Um, Miguel and Bobby are just kind of walking around. Um, they have an interaction with the neighborhood drug dealer, which is obviously uncomfortable. Um, they have an interaction with some of the girls, some of the neighborhood girls. Uh, Miguel is actually very into um rita who's like a 16 year old so she's three years older than him obviously way more developed than he is um basically looks like a babysitter dating her child <laughs> but not that they're dating but like i said miguel kind of has the hots for her he's trying to make an impression on her inviting her to the block party but then his mother jumps on her uh patio and starts yelling for miguel to come home Obviously, anybody, you know, who's ever had, who's ever lived in a tight-knit neighborhood like that knows what it's like when mom just starts yelling for you to come home and do your homework or clean your room or whatever. And, of course, if you're talking to girls, it's going to be embarrassing. Or, more importantly, clean your underwear. Oh, yeah, your dirty underwear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, the Bobby go to the basketball court in the neighborhood, and they meet up with Luis. Uh, Luis is, as I mentioned earlier, kind of the comic relief of the trio. Um, he has low blood sugar, which will come into play a little bit later. He's also a very odd character because he's reading Salem's Lot, which is unusual for... I, I, he's either Puerto Rican or Dominican. I don't know if they ever specifically say, but, um, you know, he's he's Caribbean in some way. Uh, but he's reading Stephen King's Salem Law, and he's wearing a ghost t-shirt. Yes, the band Ghost. So this is definitely an unusual kid for the Bronx, but, you know, good on him. He's an original. I'll give him that. So like I said, the kids, uh, you know, they're all at the basketball court. They have yet another interaction with kind of the neighborhood uh, drug dealers where uh, one of them actually notices that Luis is wearing new sneakers and makes the comment, what size are those? And Luis says, oh, they're size nine. And the thug in the back seat, I, I believe his name is Slim, he makes the comment of, well, it's a little small, but I think I can make it do. And then Luis kind of corrects himself. No, 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 actually, they're like a size eight or something. You know, basically trying to make it seem like they're too small for the thug. Um, the guy driving, who is like, uh, I, I believe his name is Henny, uh, short for Hennessy, I'm assuming, uh, basically... Um, is like the main thug in the movie, main drug dealer, whatever you want to go with. Um, he basically just decides, okay, fuck it, let's get out of here. You, you know, you guys don't know what's going on. Blah blah blah. Um, we have an in then we have an interaction with um, Miguel and the pretty blonde woman from the opening scene. Uh, it turns out she just moved into the neighborhood and she introduces herself to the boys as Vivian. Uh, she lets them know, oh, yeah, I just moved to the Bronx. Why is everybody always so surprised that I moved here? You know, because and Luis makes the comment that, well, you're the kind of person that would call the cops on us, not move into this neighborhood. So obviously they're a little weary. Get some social commentary uh, comedy there. It, it <laughs> didn't work for me, but I guess it might work for some people. 
At this point, Miguel lets Vivian know about the block party. He ends up giving her some flyers. Uh, she offers to help spread the word um, because she wants to get to know all her neighbors, blah, blah, blah. He gives her a stack of flyers, and Vivian goes on her merry way. Then at that point, the three boys, uh, basically, they go on their separate ways because Miguel is trying to plaster the city with these flyers so that everyone knows about the block party. But the boys, Bobby and Louise, have no real interest in doing this. I mean, they're both of the of the uh, belief that the bodega is pretty much doomed anyway. It's going to close regardless. Miguel obviously, you know, takes offense to that and says, no, nah, no, nah, we can save it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Bobby and Luis end up leaving to go to the bodega themselves to play some video games while Miguel continues plastering flyers around the city. At one point, uh, something scares him and he starts riding his bike like pretty fast down the street. He ends up bumping into the thug Slim that we talked about earlier from the uh, basketball court, and he ends up knocking over his drink. Uh, Slim has like one of those super big gulps of something red, and uh, he ends up knocking it over, and it spills all over Slim. Slim, being the badass thug that he is, decides to chase down this 13-year-old to do Lord knows what. Uh, he ends up chasing him into a parking garage where he up losing him because slim as you can figure the nickname slim is ironic slim is not slim he's a rather large gentleman so like i said he's chasing miguel into this parking garage this multi-level parking garage miguel ends up losing him but then after uh he loses miguel and basically just you know does the i'll get you next time punk type thing he turns around and there's a gentleman with long white hair wearing all black standing behind him. Of course, the thug, you know, instantly goes into thug mode where he's like, you know, what's up with you? What you want? Because the, um, the person that's standing in front of him is walking straight towards him very slowly. Slim pulls out his gun, points it at the person, uh, you know, whose name we don't know yet. And, uh, threatens to shoot him. Eventually, the guy um, does one of those quick lunges and goes right in front of Slim and does what I guess is some kind of hypnotism because, you know, the screen kind of starts to go blurry a little bit. Um, there's like two or three times in the film that this happens where one of the vampires will, will stare deeply into someone's eyes and kind of... Uh, hypnotize might be a stretch, but, you know... Um, you know, makes them a little bit uh, easier to kill, if you will. Um, so anyway, the vampire ends up attacking Slim. He ends up biting him. And while he's biting him, they both start to levitate in the air. Obviously, the vampire can levitate. He's just carrying Slim up there with him. Once he's gotten his fill of Slim's blood, he drops Slim's body and he falls to the ground. Of course, Miguel witnesses the entire attack. By himself, there's no one else there with him. Um, he ends up getting away, but at the last second, the vampire does hear Miguel's uh, bicycle right away, so he um, basically starts to chase him. Miguel runs away and goes to the bodega, back to Tony's bodega. And at the bodega, Tony, who is like a middle-aged Dominican guy who owns the store, is there playing. It looks like he's playing like uh, either Street Fighter Five or Tekken Six, maybe. I'm not sure. It's a fighting game, anyway. 
Um, I, I know you gamers are interested, so. <laughs> um, but um, uh, Miguel ends up showing up, and he's spouting this crazy story about, you know, I saw Slim get attacked, I saw Slim die, he floated, they floated in the air. You know, he's basically hysterical, just kind of spitting out little bits of information. But before Miguel can calm down, the vampire shows up at the bodega's door. And, of course, we all know the golden, one of the golden rules of vampires. They cannot enter an establishment or a dwelling without being invited. The vampire stands outside the door, but then Tony makes the mistake of saying, welcome to my bodega, what can I do for you? I guess that counts as an invitation, because then the, the vampire walks in. Uh, the, it's a very small bodega. There's like maybe two aisles in the whole thing. And, and the vampire's walking up one of the aisles, and literally on the other side of that display are the three boys crouched down, hiding behind them. Now, this is a fucking vampire. Of course, he can smell and hear the boys behind there. I mean, he's literally a couple of feet away from them. Most normal humans could probably tell that there's boys there. The vampire makes a gesture like he knows that they're there, but then he, he, he acts like he found what he was looking for in the aisle. He grabs a, uh, uh, a bottle of hand sanitizer, goes up to the counter, pays for it, as he's walking out of the store, anybody who's ever gone to like a bodega or a convenience store knows that at the door, they'll usually have that big bubble mirror so that, you know, one person at the counter can kind of keep an eye on the entire um, sales floor. Uh, as our vampire is walking out the door, our three boys notice that he is not casting a reflection on that mirror. Unfortunately, Tony doesn't notice it right away, but the three boys do. And at that moment, they decide to go back to the parking lot so that Miguel can prove that Slim actually was killed. But of course, as is horror movie, you know, uh, rule number 137, the body is gone, the crime scene has been cleaned up, and, you know, there's not really anything there to report. Um, so, of course, Tony and everybody is calling him... You know, telling him he's crazy, that, you know, that he's bugging out, blah, 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 I think were the exact words they used. And, uh, you know, they basically leave it at that. Miguel's basically seeing shit, blah, blah, blah. Now, what really bothers me about, uh, I'm going to stop here, because one of the things that bothers me is that we live in a world, this, this movie exists in a world where vampire movies exist. Because later in the film, we're going to see the boys watching uh, the movie Blade. Yet, this kid still is so adamant, uh, Miguel, that is, is so adamant about telling everyone that he saw a vampire flying in the sky and killing Slim. And it's like, wouldn't, wouldn't common sense tell that kid, don't tell people this? Like, no one is going to believe you. Not one fucking adult is going to believe you. This entire movie, your own mother doesn't believe you. She thinks that you're full of shit. Um, Luis's grandmother thinks he's full of shit. Bobby's mother thinks he's full of shit. So anyway, the point is, in a world where those horror movies exist, you would think that once the first person called him crazy, that he would fucking stop. But nope. He spends the entire movie trying to tell everyone that'll listen that there's vampires in the Bronx and that they're out to, you know, kill everybody because they can get away with it, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
again, just another suspension of disbelief that I couldn't really get behind. Um, Miguel, he, he's such a complex character, but I don't think he's supposed to be. You know what I mean? I, I, he's supposed to be in just an average 13-year-old from the Bronx, but he's so much savvier than the average 13-year-old should be that it tends to make it, at least for me, a little bit unbelievable. So, you know, take it as you will. Um, okay, so after the parking lot, we uh, then go to a scene where Frank is meeting up with some other uh, gentlemen who are dressed in all black. Uh, not the vampire with the long hair that we've already seen, but there are three new ones, three new male vampires, and uh, they're having a conversation about, you know, uh, taking over the neighborhood and blah, blah, blah. Are there any snags? Is, you know, what do we need to do to get this moving? Uh, and then the scene kind of ends fairly uneventfully. We then are introduced to um, a girl in the neighborhood who's like very into social media. She's live streaming pretty much throughout the entire movie. Uh, she's got a phone on a, uh, a selfie stick and she's just constantly recording videos throughout the movie. Um, we, we then see Miguel back home talking to his mother. His mother is upset with them because he came home late the night before, but he's very obviously lying about where he was. Um, for some reason, he doesn't want to tell his mother quite yet what's going on, uh, but then it kind of slips out. Um, he starts, he accidentally brings up vampires, and of course the mother instantly is like, oh God, why don't you get serious, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a pretty uneventful scene. Uh, basically ends with uh, Miguel texting the other two boys, Bobby and Luis, uh, to meet him somewhere. Um, I, I believe they're going back to the bodega. This is where we see uh, Chris Red, uh, the comedian, uh, in what is probably one of the funnier roles in the movie. Um, just kind of giving um, Miguel shit. Uh, they call him Little Little Man, uh, Little Man or Little Mayor. I'm not sure, uh, but his business card... Think said mayor. Yeah, the business card said mayor, but it seems like everybody's calling him little man. Uh, but anyway, um, he, he meets up with Luis in front of the bodega, but when he gets there, he sees Bobby interacting with Henny, uh, you know, the main thug from the movie. Um, as soon as Bobby notices Miguel is there, he instantly, like, changes his demeanor and says goodbye to Henny and walks away. Um, this is where we find out that uh, Bobby's father actually was a gangbanger himself and was shot in the streets. He is now dead. Um, and throughout the movie, you'll hear Bobby's mother and Miguel say, you don't want to end up like your father. And that's basically what they mean, just end up dead in the streets. So, um, and throughout a lot of these scenes, like I said, we're getting some spectacular music Um a really good Afro-Cuban jazz, Afro-Latin jazz, um, you know, traditional Puerto Rican and Dominican music, merengue, salsa, stuff like that being played throughout the film. Uh, probably my favorite part of the movie is the score, so kudos there. Then the boys all decide to meet back at um, the bodega, and this is the scene where they now uh, decide to watch Blade. And while they're watching Blade... Um, uh, basically Miguel goes to Luis, all right, what do we need to know about vampires? And this is where the movie kind of turns into vampire land, uh, 
kind of trying to be zombie land because they start talking about, you know, the weaknesses, the rules, if you will. And, you know, it's kind of presented not so much with on-screen text like in Zombieland, but with um, Miguel writing stuff in a notepad with, like, silly little pictures like tombstones and shit. So it's definitely, once again, going for, like, a Zombieland feel to it. Uh, and they're and like I said, they're just going over the rules. You know, uh, vampires need to be invited in. Uh, garlic works on vampires. You can use either wood or silver stakes uh, to kill. You know, in the heart to kill a vampire. Basically, just going over all the rules uh, that have been established by movies. Um, you know, over the last 50, 60 years or so. Um, the scene continues. They continue talking. Uh, they talk at one point. They actually foreshadow a kill later in the movie, which is my favorite kill in the whole movie, where they talk about if you take the Eucharist. Anyone who doesn't know what the Eucharist is, it's basically that cracker that you get in uh, in a Catholic or Christian church. Um, you know, the body of Christ, basically. Um, that's called the Eucharist, and they basically go over that. You know, vampires can't handle. Uh, the body of Christ, that it affects them. And that foreshadows a pretty cool vampire kill later in the movie, which we'll get into. Um, so they're still, at this point, they're still at the bodega. They're still talking about the rules. And then that's when Rita walks in. And like I said, Rita is the girl, the 16-year-old that Miguel's kind of into. And she can tell that they're talking about vampires. And she actually adds her two cents in about what she knows about vampires. And she actually, later in the film, actually turns out to be really smart on the subject and actually um, changes the neighborhood's mind on something. But we'll get to that. So that's how, that's how it usually works. Like the one person that isn't invited in initially yeah. is like, oh, they're actually the smartest one of all. Exactly, yep. She's the crazy Ralph, but without the crazy. So... <laughs> um, at this point, um, the boys, uh, Miguel, Luis, and Bobby, they decide to go to Murnau, uh headquarters, uh, Murnau Properties, you know, the company that's buying up all these, um, you know, stores and properties throughout the neighborhood. Uh, they go in with the guise of being um, collecting for charity for the, the block party for the bodega. Um, they want to speak to the manager. They just, they ask, they walk in, there's a secretary at the desk who's just a complete cunt to these boys for no real reason. She just seems like someone who doesn't want to be bothered with actual work. Um, so she actually, as, when she leaves her desk to go speak to someone, to bring them out to speak to the boys, while she's away, Miguel jumps on her computer and just starts looking at, like, some random files on there. Unfortunately, he doesn't really get a whole lot of time to, you know, to look around because then the woman comes back and the boys fully expect her to come back and say, uh, yeah, he doesn't have any time. He's not going to be able to speak to you. But to the boys' surprise, she comes back and says, uh, someone will be out here to speak to you in a minute. Uh, they're they're obviously shocked because they didn't think anybody would answer the call for charity. Um, and then Frank ends up walking out. Yes, Frank, the familiar that we've already met. Um, he walks out and he actually closes the blinds in the main room. Uh, they're electronic blinds, so, you know, they're blackout, so there's no sunlight coming in. So, of course, you know... Um, Technically, this is the part of the movie where we're, we haven't gotten the confirmation yet that Frank is a familiar, though it's pretty obvious to anybody who's ever seen a vampire movie. As soon as we see Frank, 
we pretty much know who he is. Um, so anyway, Frank takes the boys back to his office. He asks them, you know, what are they looking? What do they, what do they want? And Miguel basically says, oh, you know, we're collecting donations to save the bodega because, you know, it, it, it's really important to us. And to their surprise, Frank wants to make a donation. He actually says, how's $2,000? The boys are obviously shocked. They're like, what? And Frank's like, no, no, you're right. 3000 would be better. So Frank actually writes them a check for $3,000 and hands it to Miguel as he hands Miguel the check, though, he pulls out one of Miguel's flyers that we've been seeing throughout the film, and he says that somebody put one of these flyers over our sign at the courthouse. Uh, do you know anything about it? Obviously, Miguel's the only person putting up uh, flyers, and we did see him earlier in the movie put a flyer over Vlad Tepish's head on one of their banners. So obviously it was Miguel. Um, after Frank asks the question, you can kind of see Luis get really, really uncomfortable. And then out of nowhere, he just passes out and he falls off his chair. Instantly, Frank gets up to make sure that Luis is okay. At the moment that Frank's not paying attention, Bobby grabs one of those bank deposit envelopes, one of those big, like, leather envelopes, um, for safety deposit, not safety, um, like night deposits, like a night deposit envelope. He basically grabs it, doesn't know what's in it. He just decides to grab it, and maybe there's something in there that they can use. Uh, Luis ends up uh, coming to, uh, apologizing for passing out, and they end up leaving the establishment. As soon as they leave the establishment, they go in, uh, they basically find like a flash drive in that envelope. They put it in Miguel's uh, laptop, and they start to see, like, the plans that these that the vampires have. They start to see, like, schematics for buildings that have, like, rows of coffins, uh, vampire coffins, like, you know, neatly stacked, not stacked, but neatly placed in rows. And, they, and that's when we finally start to see what exactly is going on. These vampires are basically trying to take over the Bronx, um, figuring that they can feed at, at will and they won't have to deal with too much uh, uh, police interaction since these are, once again, a marginalized group living in low-rent neighborhoods where cops maybe don't you know, venture to tread. So, um, And as they're looking up all this information, uh, they're actually at Bobby's house right now. At that moment Bobby's mother walks into the bedroom and Miguel closes the laptop really fast so instantly the mom thinks they're looking at porn um, and she actually looks at Miguel and Luis and says I know what you two are doing I know what you're up to Miguel and Luis are looking at each other thinking holy shit she knows about the vampires but then she's like oh, yeah go back to you know looking for your nudie pictures whatever go back to your nudie search I think was her exact line um, but just before she says that, she does admonish her son, Bobby, because she says that she heard that he's been hanging around Henny. Um, and obviously with Henny being like the big neighborhood thug, drug dealer, whatever you want to go with, um, you know, mom's not happy instant. You know, Bobby is obviously denying it. No, I ain't doing nothing. I ain't doing nothing. Blah, 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 blah. Um, the boys continue to talk. Uh, they continue to, like, fill in the gaps of the vampire's plan. And then at one point, Bobby drops the night deposit envelope, and a key falls out of it, a very old, ornate-looking key with that actually has a skull on top of it. 
Um, just, you know, an old classic metal key. At that moment, Bobby gets a, um, like a notification on his phone. And then we see the social network girl, the girl who's constantly live streaming. Uh, she's actually live streaming um, uh, employees of the Murnau Property Company, bringing in large boxes into the courthouse. And what do the large boxes look like? They look like coffins. Not exactly, but they have the general shape. And someone actually makes the comment, damn, they look like coffins. That's when the boys realize that must be where the vampires like are staying. Because earlier in the film, they talked about the vampire nest where they, because they all, vampires tend to all sleep in the same area that they feel is safe. Um, and they assume that it's the courthouse. So the boys end up going to the courthouse and uh, they end up breaking in. The courthouse is closed, mind you. It's just another property that, Man that Murnau has bought out. Um, so it's closed, it's boarded up. There's actually construction going on outside the front of it. The boys end up breaking a glass door in the front lobby and they get in. Uh, they turn on the lights on their cell phones and they just start walking around the building. Finally, they find like a set of stairs going down to a kind of a catacombs type area. And in this area, there are five coffins, four regular size ones and then one larger one at the at the right at the head of the room. Uh, the boys obviously realize what's going on. Miguel. Um, the whole point of them breaking into the courthouse is for Miguel to get video of an interaction with one of the vampires so that he can finally prove to the adults of the neighborhood, you know, that he's telling the truth, that he's not insane. He ends up opening one of the coffins and um, the vampire, there, there is a vampire inside, though he does not wake up right away. He remains asleep. It is the middle of the day at this point. And um, the boys or Miguel decides, you know, he's going to open up one of these coffins so that he can get video of this. He opens up the coffin and there is the long haired, the long white haired um, vampire, the very first one that we met. And um, like I said, he's still asleep, but then out of nowhere, Bobby's cell phone goes off. Yes. Horror trope number 312. Bobby's cell phone goes off instantly waking up the vampire uh, the vampire, uh, Miguel, once again, in some sort of attempt at comedy, uh, slowly closes the coffin and runs out of the room. Of course, at this point, all four of the vampires in the smaller caskets all wake up and they all start to chase the boys out. This is where the inconsistency starts, because we've already seen our long-haired vampire flying. But in this scene... They're, they're in the catacombs. They're like in the basement of the courthouse. And they end up chasing the boys on foot. And the whole time I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you could fucking fly. And if they would have flown, they would have caught the boys easily. But once again, I know it's a plot device. They have to advance the story. So there it is. Um, you know, R2-D2 not flying again when it could have been used. So, you know, what are you going to do? Um, like I said, this is my, this is just one of my problems with this inconsistent writing, the cliche writing, uh, just, you know, it, it just ultimately doesn't work for me, even as a family film, but that's just me. So anyway, um, the vampires chase the boys out to the front entrance. 
Um, it's still daylight out, so the boys run out the front door. They leave the doors open so that the vampires can't chase them uh, completely outside. As soon as the vampires get up to the front door, they start to react to the sunlight, and they just basically run back in. Uh, we get some more interactions. Um, oh, right. After the boys get out of the courthouse, uh, the police actually show up, and they don't exactly arrest the boys, but what they do is they take the boys into custody, and then they take them to Murnau headquarters to speak to Frank. Since Frank is, uh, you know, now the property owner for all these properties, officially on paper, Frank is the owner of all these properties. Um, so they take him to see Frank to see if Frank wants to press charges. Um, after they get there, though, before they actually get inside to speak to Frank, Miguel pulls out his cell phone to play the video that he just recorded down in the basement. Um, he thinks that he's got proof on his cell phone, finally, that, you know, these vampires exist. Unfortunately, as many savvy vampire fans know, vampires can't have their picture taken. Um, they can't be recorded on film of any kind. It just comes up as blank. And that's what ends up, that's what we end up seeing in Miguel's video. Uh, he opens the coffin and there's nothing in the coffin. And then the rest of the video just shows the boys running away from nothing. Um, obviously all the adults start laughing. Well, not all, but a lot of the adults start laughing. Uh, but then Rita is there. Um, don't forget Rita, our 16 year old who is very savvy. And she actually says, well, dumbass, if they're vampires, they can't be recorded on film. And then you kind of see some of the faces of the adults, because at this point, all of the parents and guardians of our three boys are there. So Miguel's mother is there, Bobby's, uh, Bobby's mother, and Luis's grandmother. They're all there, obviously admonishing their boys, wondering if Frank is going to press charges. Uh, the police end up confiscating the red um, night deposit envelope that they stole from Frank. They give it back to Frank. Frank decides not to press charges. He just goes, you know, boys will be boys. Nothing was damaged. Nothing was stolen. So I'm fine. Um, at this point, the boys are all individually admonished by their parents or guardians. We see the police having a laugh with Frank. And then Miguel's mother basically forces Miguel to go home. Um, Miguel tries to plead with Tony to tell, you know, because for some reason he thinks Tony might actually be on his side as far as believing the vampire story. But at this point, Tony hasn't seen shit. So, you know, Tony basically tells him, go home with your mother, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, after the boys go their separate ways, we see Frank in the office, in his office, and he pulls out this large, not large, but like a black box, like a small black um, box, chest, whatever you want to go with. He looks in the night deposit envelope, realizes that the key isn't there. The key, the ornate key that I mentioned earlier with the skull on it, uh, that's the only thing missing from the envelope, and it seems like it's the only thing that Frank wanted. So, yeah. Um, so Frank is obviously distraught, um, and then we see someone walk into the room and we only get to see their shoulder. So we don't, you can't tell if it's male or female, a uh, human or vampire, but basically he calls them commander. I, I, was it commander? Yeah, I think it was commander. And um, says, yes, commander, what can I do for you? 
um, and then the scene goes black. So now we know that Frank is answering to someone in the film. We just don't know who as of yet. Uh, the next scene is basically uh, all the thugs. Remember I mentioned there's like four or five um, that were in that opening scene earlier with the boys at the basketball court. Um, obviously Slim is dead, but the other thugs have met Frank at Frank's request. Frank apparently um, is unhappy that there are still some people in the neighborhood that refuse to sell. So rather than sending out his vampire goons to kill these people, because he does need their signatures to legally take the property, he ends up um, talking to Henny and the other thugs and convincing them to kind of maybe strong arm some of these people, um, you know, to get them to sell their property, blah, 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 you know. A uh, dirty real estate guy hiring a gang to do his dirty work. You know, fairly basic stuff. Frank hands Henny a briefcase filled with money, lots and lots of money, though it was all $20 bills. Usually it's $100 bills, but so it's not nearly as much as I maybe think it is. Um, like I said, at, the, at this point, um, we go back to Bobby's house. Bobby is home. Uh, obviously, all three boys are grounded at this point. They're not really supposed to leave their house. Um, but then Luis figures out who Frank is. Who he, he figures out that Luis is a familiar, that he's actually a human servant to the vampires. That's why Frank was able to come out in the sun. I, do, I did forget to mention that, that in the scene where the cops went to see Frank about the three boys that broke into the courthouse, Frank does step out into the sun. It's the first time that we actually see Frank outside. So even before Luis realizes it, we as the audience realize it, that yes, he is... Uh, a familiar. Um, he's kind of giving Miguel all this information over the phone, but Miguel, you know, is grounded. There's not really a whole lot he can do with that information right now. Then we see Bobby. Bobby is stuck in his bedroom, and who comes knocking at his bedroom window but Henny. Um, Henny, basically, it, it seems like Henny's kind of been grooming him to be, like, a member of his little gang there. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, he's talking to Henny, or Henny is talking to Bobby through his bedroom window, and he tells him, hey, look, player, if you want to get out of this neighborhood, if you want to get out of poverty, everything else, this is the only way you're going to do, you're going to be able to do it. This is your last chance at making money. Um, for some reason, that resonates with Bobby. Bobby ends up getting a phone call from Miguel at that exact moment, but just you know, completely admonishes him, basically says, I'm done with you, I'm done with all this vampire shit, you know, fuck you, leave me alone, and then we see Bobby take off with Henny. Um, at this point, all um, Luis and Miguel's families have all decided to go to church. Um, I don't know if this is a normal uh, mass or if this is some kind of special thing because of all the weird shit that's going on in the neighborhood, the missing people, uh, the company buying up all the property, blah, blah, blah. And then that's when we meet um, the priest of the church. As Mike mentioned earlier, we get Method Man playing a holy man. Go figure. Um, and he basically has heard all the stories about what the boys have been doing. He also hears that Bobby has been fraternizing with Henny and is very upset about that and is wondering where Henny is. The boys kind of cover for, or wonder where Bobby is, excuse me. Um, you know, the priest is upset that Bobby's not there and that he's been hanging out with Henny. 
but the boys cover for him and say that he couldn't make it out tonight, blah, 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 blah. We then go inside the church, and in the church, basically, it's it's all the players that we've met uh, up until now. Uh, Miguel and Luis, all their families are there. Um, Bobby's mother is there. Tony is there. Basically, everyone we've met, other than vampires, is at the church right now. They're having some kind of mass. And what the boys end up doing is uh, they want they, they, they to steal some supplies from the church. Um, the body of Christ, wafers, and holy water. But they need an opportunity to get to um, the, the father's office so that they can get that stuff. So basically they take advantage of the first prayer. So when everyone, including the priest, bows their head in prayer, the boys literally just decide to get up and go to the father's office so that they can grab the stuff that they need. Uh, Rita is the only person in the whole church who notices the boys leave. Um, so she, of course, gets up to see what the boys are up to. At this point, we're transported back to the bodega, and Tony is there by himself. And we see Vivian, who, you know, up until now, Vivian's just been this friendly little white woman who moved into the neighborhood. But then we get the first kind of inclination of who she actually is because we see her walk up to the entrance of the bodega, but she does not walk in until Tony says, welcome to my bodega, what can I do for you? Which, once again, uh, uh, apparently counts as an invitation. She walks in, they start to have a little conversation about the bodega, about the block party, you know, and she talks about uh, making cinnamon scones, like she wants to make some kind of pastry for the festivities. Um, she starts looking around the store to see if there's anything that she needs. Uh, she ends up just grabbing a tub of hummus. Um, she, she grabs the hummus, she walks up to the counter and say, and, you know, Tony's wondering if she needs anything else. She says no. Um, Tony decides to give it to her on the house because she's new to the neighborhood and she's going to be bringing scones to the block party. So he's like, hummus is on me, but let me get a bag for you. Uh, Miguel bends down to grab a bag from behind the counter but then he looks at his security camera and all he sees in his security camera is the tub of hummus floating in midair. Yes, Vivian's uh, is not being recorded on the video. Um, unfortunately, Tony isn't able to play it off as easily. Um, he takes a little bit too long to stand back up and then say, oh, I'm out of bags. Um, instantly, you can kind of tell that Vivian knows something is up. As soon as Vivian walks out of the store, Tony picks up the phone and he's trying to call. I, I'm not sure if he's trying to. Oh, he's trying to call Miguel, um, but he gets his voicemail. He starts to leave a voicemail uh, for Miguel and then the power goes out. The power in the bodega goes out and the phone goes out, you know, mid message. Um, at this point, Tony understands, you know, he's in the shit now. He grabs his famous Sammy Sosa bat off the wall and, um, you know, he's basically trying to defend himself. There's someone in the store running ultra fast, you know, like a blur back and forth. Um, finally, someone tries to grab him from behind. But luckily, Bobby is wearing uh, a rather ornate uh, crucifix around his neck on a chain. And when the vampire comes and tries to grab him from behind, they put their hand right on the cross on his chest and they burn their hand. 
uh, making them kind of, you know, take a couple of steps back. That's when Tony finally gets a good look at who is attacking him, and it is Vivian. Uh, so we get, you know, concrete confirmation that Vivian is a vampire. You know, she does the uh, the weird mutation thing with her face, the, the transformation where, you know, she just kind of looks a little bit more vampiritic at this point. Um, unfortunately, Tony attempts to defend himself with the Sammy Sosa bat, but is no match for Vivian. Uh, she ends up biting him, and the scene goes to black. Or no, she doesn't bite him. She actually... Um, Scratches them, claws them, because I think this is the scene where we see blood dripping off her fingers. Um, so, unfortunately, Tony is gone. Probably my fa eh, one of my favorite characters in the movie, but what are you going to do? Um, at this point, we go back to the church, and we see Miguel and Luis have gotten their way into the father's office. They see the big thing of holy water, the urn of holy water in the corner of the room, but they need a way to transport the holy water out of there. And they look over and they see that the, that the father has two two liter bottles of Sprite um, next to a couple of boxes of donuts that I guess are for the parishioners later. Um, they end up emptying out both bottles of Sprite and filling them up with holy water. They also, um, when they went up for um, the Eucharist for the body of Christ, um, Luis kept his wafer instead of putting it in his mouth. He actually puts it in his shirt pocket. Uh, so the boys now are a little bit more um, prepared. As they're filling up the bottles with holy water, Method Man walks into the office, is looking around, wondering what's going on. Instantly, he notices his bottles of Sprite are missing and actually makes a comment about those little shits stole my Sprite. So apparently Method Man loves Sprite. That's, that's the one thing I learned in this movie. Okay, so after that, the boys get out of the church. They go running outside, and Rita cuts them off. Uh, Rita's out there in her Sunday vest and asking the boys, oh, I saw you guys disappear. Where did you go? The boys obviously try to play it off. They don't really want to tell her the truth. Um, you know, they try to claim that uh, Louise has low blood sugar, and that's why they stole the Sprite. But then when she, when Rita asks, well, can I have a sip of it? They both uh, vehemently say no. So obviously Rita knows there's something going on. She basically tells them, either you tell me what's going on, or I'm going back in the church and telling everybody that you're out here, blah, blah, blah. Um, at this point, the boys kind of relent and let her know that, yes, you know, again, it's Miguel is back on his vampire kick. They think they know where the vampire nest is and that they're going back there uh, prepared this time with stakes and holy water and, you know, body of Christ and everything else. So uh, they end up going their separate ways. The next scene, we see Bobby at Henny's house and basically laid out on the coffee table in the living room of Henny's house is just guns and drugs. There's bags of cocaine, bags of weed, a bunch of uh, firearms. And Henny is basically giving um, Bobby another spiel about how you're never going to get out of this neighborhood. You're never going to make it, um, you know, by going to school and getting a job. Your only way of making money and becoming a success is with me. Um, at that point, Henny hands Bobby a gun. Uh, obviously, Bobby's never held a gun in his life. You could tell, see how uncomfortable he is holding it. 
Henny basically says, uh, don't you dare say I'm good, you know, when he hands him the gun. Basically saying, don't you dare deny this gift I'm giving you or I'm going to use it on you. Bobby takes the gun, kind of holds it in his hand, looks at it a little bit. At that point, um... At that point, the rest of the gang members start loading up all their weapons like they're about to go out on a job. And Bobby says, I need to go to the bathroom. He ends up excusing himself, going to the bathroom, locking the door behind him, and then realizing that there's a ground-level window in the bathroom. So he basically leaves the gun in the sink, doesn't take it with him, good on him. And jumps out the window to then join Miguel, Luis, and Rita, who are now on their way to the courthouse to deal with these vampires. This is what I mean about the bravery of these kids. I mean, they know that there's like five or six vampires here, and and Tony got taken out so easily by a female vampire that you wouldn't think that the rest of... And I know that statement sounds sexist. It, it's not meant to. But it's just, you know, because these vampires, the male vampires are all tall and built and everything. And then here's little blonde Vivian, who completely decimated Tony, yet these kids think they can take these vampires out on their own. Like I said, suspension of disbelief, I'll deal with it. Um, at this point, uh, the boys get to the bodega, and it's boarded up completely. They know for a fact that Tony would never, ever sell that bodega. So... Obviously, they all kind of make the realization that, oh, shit, I think Tony's dead. He's already been probably taken out. They start to break into the bodega and realize, well, you know, um, why are we even bothering? But then Rita, you know, tells them, I forget specifically what Rita says, but she convinces them to go into the bodega. The boys end up breaking down the boards at the front door. They walk into the bodega and they see the scene um, that hasn't been cleaned up. Uh, Tony's body isn't there, but um, the gro there's groceries all over the floor. There is a blood stain on the floor, and they do find his uh, Sammy Sosa bat broken on the ground. Um, so obviously Miguel has like a, a little tender moment where he realizes that you know one of his best friends is gone. He starts to cry. His his friends kind of come to his comfort and let him know, dude, we got to get out of here. We got to go, you know, figure out, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they end up leaving the bodega and uh, basically they start to go towards the, um, the courthouse. As they run out of the bodega into the back alley, they are um, cut off by the other four vampires, the four male vampires that we've already seen. Um, they, uh, the kids notice the vampires, and they end up running the other way. But at the exact same time, Henny and his gang show up, and they confront the vampires. So, um, of course, you know, Henny, as any standard movie thug is going to do, they pull out their weapons, they threaten the vampires, the vampires are all sitting there just kind of smiling at them. Um, the, bo uh, the gang pulls out, they all pull out their guns, they mow down the vampires, all the vampires fall, so obviously Henny and the boys, you know, think, you know, we got these motherfuckers, blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, the vampires do the uh, straight leg stand-up thing that a lot of vampires have done over the years. And uh, they end up attacking the gang. But, of course, we don't see that. It just goes to a black screen. So, unfortunately, what are you going to do? 
but as the boys are as the boys and Rita are running away from those vampires, they run into Vivian. Um, and obviously they don't know who Vivian is at this point, who she really is. So they actually grab her by the hand and say, come with us. You know, there's vampires chasing us, blah, blah, blah. Um, she doesn't really question it for obvious reasons. Uh, and they all end up going to Miguel's house. Once they get to Miguel's house, um, Vivian actually knocks on the door and Miguel's mother is like, oh, I'm sorry, was the music too loud? Again, a minority sees a white person, instantly they think that they're going to complain about something. So, you know, um, but, uh, excuse me, Miguel's mother apologizes. She invites all the kids in, but she doesn't specifically invite Vivian in. And Vivian is standing out in the hall, obviously. She can't come in until she's invited. And you can, and she starts complimenting Miguel's apartment, saying, you know, I love what you've done with the place. I love the color scheme. And then she actually asks, can I come in? And the boys instantly cut off mom and say, no, do not invite her in. She can't come in unless you invite her. Mom is obviously skeptical at this point, but she's still being polite to Vivian. Then um, Miguel pulls out one of the two liter bottles of Sprite or of holy water, I should say, and it's boiling. And earlier in the movie, they actually did mention that um, if a vampire is in the general vicinity, holy water will boil, will actually start to boil in whatever container it's in. Um, at that point, he tells his mother one more time, she's a vampire, don't let her in. And this time Vivian's like, you know what? Fuck it. And she just basically admits that she is a vampire. She's the commander of the vampire army and that she's actually was cre she's actually one of the original vampires because she was actually made by the original vampire, which we'll hear about a little bit later on. Um, she basically lets her fangs out. She goes full vampire mode, but she can't go into the apartment because she hasn't been invited. Like I said, at this point, mom instantly does a 180 and she suddenly believes everything Miguel has been saying. Um, and obviously Vivian is there to get the key, the mysterious key that Miguel still has. Miguel basically says, I'll give you the key if you promise to leave us alone. Leave my family alone. Leave us all alone. Of course, Vivian agrees. And Miguel starts to walk towards the front door and he starts to pull something out of his book bag. But instead of pulling out the key, he pulls out one of the two liters of holy water and sprays it on Vivian. Instantly, her, um, her skin gets scarred and, you know, she, she kind of does that vampire roar and then just blips right out. Just instantly, you know, it just zooms right out of there. So now we get the confirmation that Vivian actually is the leader. She is the commander that Frank kind of alluded to earlier. And then for the rest of the movie, Frank and all the other vampires only call her commander. They don't call her by her name. Um, at this point, like I said, they're meeting on a rooftop of a building. And Frank has the paperwork for the sale of the apartment building that Miguel lives in. So apparently, if a vampire buys the establishment, they don't they no longer need an invitation because they are the owner. I, I guess that works. Uh, it seems odd that a signature would suddenly change the rules of vampires walking into an apartment. But whatever. There it is. Um, but obviously, um, you know. 
at that point, Frank kind of asks uh, Vivian about the gift because obviously Frank is a familiar. He's working for them because the intention is that he would eventually get turned into a vampire himself, as is the case with most familiars. So Frank asks Vivian about, you know, when he might receive the gift. Vivian instantly grabs him by the neck, shutting him up and saying, if you continue to make mistakes like this, um, you don't need to worry about the gift. You'll never get the gift and, you know, blah, 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 you know, Vivian with her menacing tone. Uh, and then the scene ends and we are back at Miguel's house where basically everyone that arrived with Vivian is still there. They know that they're safe, or at least they think they're safe, because um, Vivian can't come in without an invitation. But then again, we get Miguel being way, way too proactive for a 13-year-old, basically makes the decision that he's going to leave the apartment by himself, grabbing all the holy water and crucifixes and stakes that he can carry, and he's going to, quote-unquote, take care of the vampires himself. Um, of course, as he's gathering up his tools, both Luis and Bobby also wake up. And, of course, the three boys decide, fuck it, we're going to do this. Um, so then we get a montage. We get the preparation montage where the boys are collecting up their, their garlic, their steaks, their, their wooden steaks, their silver steaks. Um, Miguel has Sammy Sosa's, uh, excuse me, Tony's broken Sammy Sosa bat because, of course, it's, it's a wooden bat that was broken, and now it's got a sharp edge, so potentially yet another stake. So at this point, all the boys, once again, are um, they go out to the alley. They start preparing. Uh, they're making water balloons with the holy water. They are sharpening all their wooden stakes and then dipping them in holy water, which I never actually thought of myself. That's actually pretty brilliant. Because um, the steak alone is enough, but if it's dipped in holy water, it's going to take care of the vampire that much quicker. So oh, that's pretty cool. He's winning you yeah. over. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I think that was one of that was a really clever touch. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, I, I will admit that was that was something I had never seen before and thought was pretty clever on their part. Um, so, like I said, uh, uh, the, the preparation montage is over. Uh, we see the kids once again going to the courthouse. Once again, they go down to the catacombs to open up the coffins. Uh, they make the comment that there's only like maybe an hour of sunlight left. So they have to get this shit done, you know, before the sun goes down. Uh, they walk into the catacombs. They open up the coffins. And lo and behold, the coffins are all empty. They're really empty this time. Um, and that's when Miguel makes the realization, oh, shit, they knew we were coming. And he notices that there's a piece of paper inside the main coffin, the big one that they opened. And as it turns out, it is a flyer for the block party. And it's actually the exact flyer that, that Miguel had given to Vivian earlier in the movie. Uh, so the kids kind of make the realization that, oh, shit, they probably left this here for us on purpose telling us basically to meet them back at the bodega. Uh, they start to run out of the courthouse thinking that they need to go to the bodega, but then Miguel drops one of the holy water-filled water balloons, and when he picks it up, he realizes the water inside the balloon is boiling. Um, he starts to take a couple of steps uh, up. He starts to go up the stairs a, a couple of steps, and the boiling becomes more active, so he realizes uh, they are still here. 
Um, they're just in another part of the courthouse. Miguel knows that they're upstairs, uh, but for some reason, Rita decides to leave um, to go and get more supplies and potentially maybe more people to help out. And that's when we get the kind of emotional scene where Miguel tells Rita, hey, if I don't make it, tell my mother I love her and I'm sorry for everything that happened. Of course, Rita replies with, you can tell her yourself when you see her later today. She ends up leaving and the boys proceed up the stairs. Um, they're basically following the intensity of the boiling holy water in the balloon as like their guide uh, where they're going in the building. They end up getting to this large black door. And as soon as they walk up to the door, uh, the boiling holy water is so intense that the balloon actually pops. And Miguel realizes this is it. We found them. Uh, you know, the boys do like one final, you know, moment of preparation before walking into the room. They end up walking into the room and there's nothing there. No coffins, no vampires, um, just some furniture covered with like tapestries. And then suddenly Luis looks up and he gets the, the other two boys' attention and he points up to the ceiling and there's our five vampires sleeping Lost Boys style, uh, upside down hanging from the rafters. Um, obviously, like I said, there's still like an hour of sunlight left so the vampires are asleep. That's another thing I never really understood about the rules of vampires. Like, why do vampires must be very heavy sleepers because it takes a lot to wake them up in the middle of the day, which seems odd to me. But whatever. Um, the boys realize that the vampires aren't waking up. So Miguel starts climbing up a scaffolding that's right next to where the vampires are hanging from. He walks up the scaffolding, pulls out a stake, and stakes one of the vampires in the heart while he's didn't hanging they, there. this whole sequence kind of like seem straight out of Lost Boys to you? Absolutely. Oh, big time. It's just they another one of the homages in, that this that movie has. I don't want to call it ripoffs because I hate that word. Obviously, um, Oz, the guy who made this movie, Oz Rodriguez, is obviously mm -hmm. a fan of the Lost Boys because there's multiple homages to the Lost Boys throughout here. But this is the most obvious one because they're all, you know, hanging upside down in a dark, decrepit room, you know, separated from society, blah, blah, blah. So, like I said, Miguel is able to take one out while he's hanging there. Uh, Bobby is then able to take out another one after um, they fall down. So that leaves three vampires left. And uh, basically Miguel uh, realizes that they're standing next to a big window that goes that, you know, shows the outside. So Miguel has, you know, he kind of says his one superhero one liner and he pulls the curtain all the way down. Unfortunately, an hour has passed and the sun is no longer out. It's dark outside. Um, so Vivian and the other two vampires that are left grab Miguel's book bag and they find the key that they've been looking for. Vivian grabs the key, puts it in the black box that I mentioned earlier that was on Frank's desk. And all that's inside of it is like red sand. It just looks like it literally like some kind of colored sand. Uh, that's when Vivian lets us know that these are the ashes of the original vampire, the one who made her um, literally the most powerful vampire ever. And basically what they do, do is doing they, everything they can not to say Dracula, because that's exactly. I, 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 yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, um, Vivian explains that they use that powder to spray, to like blow into people's faces so that they get the, the first initial toxin of the vampire virus. And then after they get the dust uh, sprayed in their face, when a vampire then bites them, they will turn. So apparently without that dust, uh, anybody bitten by a vampire is just food, basically. They basically just die. But if they have this stuff sprayed in their face, they will become a vampire. Um, <laughs> uh, during the montage, uh, during the preparation montage, Luis, being Hispanic, we actually see him grab a large container of garlic adobo. Uh, any white people out there who don't know what adobo is, it's basically a very popular seasoning used by um, Hispanic and Filipino chefs for seasoning. It's, it's kind of like the most popular seasoning in Hispanic and Dominican food. Uh, Cuban food also uses a lot of it. So, um, and you can find, you can buy it at any store, any, you know, random supermarket will have some form of adobo, either Goya or, or some other brand, whatever the case may be. Mm. Um, and what Luis, <laughs> Luis actually, when he pulls out the adobo out of his pocket, it actually looks the exact same as the powder in the box. Did anybody else think they were going to do something with that? Because the adobo is literally a red powder. And then the stuff inside of this box looked like red sand. So I legitimately thought they were going to do some kind of switcheroo, you know, where she sprays stuff in somebody's face, but it's actually just garlic adobo. Um, but they didn't do that. Uh, basically, you know, the adobo gag just kind of... Yeah, uh, I, I guess they yeah. assume there's enough garlic in it already. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the garlic I content. I probably would have known something had I known what adobo was. Yeah, yeah, just a seasoning, Hispanic oh, seasoning. Yeah, really good well, too, by the way. Well, no, I just thought that adobo was actually like the was like the flavor. Oh no, garlic is the flavor because oh. it, it yeah, it said garlic adobo on the on yeah, the label. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that I thought it was like garlic, but then it was like flavored. That was like. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, other way around. So it's garlic-flavored adobo. But anyway, um, so like I said, uh, Luis pulls out the adobo and actually throws it at Vivian as she's holding uh, one of the boys in her hands. Uh, all it really does is distract people. Obviously, the vampires do react because there is garlic in it, but it is just a powder, so it's not like you know they're violently reacting. They just kind of wipe their eyes, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, so the boys start to run outside of the, the courthouse. They actually make it outside to the courthouse where they are met by Frank. And Frank is standing there with a sawed-off shotgun pointed right at the boys. Bobby then has the, uh, the negotiator moment where he starts talking to Frank, starts telling him, look, I know you're a familiar. I know you want to be one of them. They're never going to turn you. They're never, ever going to make you a vampire, and you know it. You know, you know, deep down inside, you know they're never going to change you. They're just going to use you up until you don't have a purpose anymore. Frank ends up lowering the shotgun and agreeing with Bobby and saying, yeah, you're probably right, and he lets him go. He actually tells the boys, okay, go, get out of here. At that moment, Vivian and the other two vampires walk out of the courthouse and, you know, uh, Vivian basically looks at Frank and says, you're useless, and basically just slashes his throat, and Frank falls, and that's the end of that scene. 
Um, at this point, the boys end up running um, back to their neighborhood. They don't make it into anyone's house. They basically make it to the basketball court from earlier in the film uh, before the vampires catch up to them. And this is where I have a problem with this final scene because these boys dispatch these vampires, these vampires that are hundreds of years old, that can fly, that don't cast a reflection, that are incredibly powerful, yet they start picking off these vampires one by one. Uh, Luis ends up getting cornered uh, by the long-haired vampire, the first vampire we met. Um, he goes to bite Luis, but Luis grabs his skateboard and puts it in the vampire's mouth. The vampire, of course, bites down and breaks the skateboard, leaving a sharp edge on the board itself. Luis picks it up, buries the pointed edge into the vampire's heart, and the vampire bursts in the flame and disappears. Um leaving Vivian and one more vampire. So at this point, Miguel and Bobby are kind of um, back in the parking garage from earlier, and Vivian actually gets a hold of Miguel and looks deep into his eyes, and we start getting that kind of blurry effect, like he's being, um, like he's potentially being um, hypnotized. But then at the exact, and, and as she's doing this, she's talking about, how the vampires wanted to take over the Bronx because it's a shithole and nobody cares about people from the Bronx if they end up dead. At that moment, she's about to bite into Miguel and suddenly we hear Chris Red's voice go, what'd you say about the Bronx? <laughs> and Vivian turns around and there's a large section of the community, basically everybody that was in the church. Um, it looks like Rita went back to the church and grabbed everybody that was in the church. She somehow convinced them. Uh, obviously, Miguel's mother has already experienced it firsthand, but she convinces, somehow convinces everybody else to help them. Uh, they end up having a confrontation where all the neighborhood people from the church are all armed. Uh, they all have weapons in their hands. It, and this kind of felt like the uh, finale and people under the the stairs when the whole neighborhood shows up to their house exactly yes exactly um so anyway vivian is standing there um what happens oh miguel's mother goes to kind of attack her but she grabs uh miguel's mother by the throat at that moment um not chris red but the guy that was hanging out with chris red um smashes uh, some piece of wood on vivian which distracts her, and then Chris Red comes in for a flying attack for some reason. She ends up catching him and throwing him. And then another attempt at comedy, one of the girls in the group who doesn't have a weapon, actually the social media girl with the, with the selfie stick, ends up taking off one of her boots and just throwing it at Vivian. The boot hits Vivian in the face, and Vivian has a look like, what the fuck? Did you throw a boot at me? She doesn't actually say it, thankfully, but you know the look on her face says it all. Uh, Miguel then charges Vivian, but Vivian is able to thwart his attack. She ends up grabbing him by the neck and lifting him off the ground. At that point, she pulls out the powder, uh, the red mist, um, or the red sand from the box, and she blows some in his face. And she basically says, I need to, you know, I need to, you know, bring up my numbers, because all, all of her vampire buddies have been dispatched by this point. It's just Vivian. Um, but just as Vivian is about to bite Miguel in the neck, 
in comes Bobby riding a bicycle and propped up on the handlebars of the bicycle is the Sammy is the broken Sammy Sosa bat from Tony's bodega. He ends up riding his bike right into Vivian. And of course the bat gets buried right into Vivian's heart. Um, basically dispatching her. Vivian ends up dying the slowest of all the vampires. Most of them die pretty quick, but she kind of takes a minute before her body just bursts into flame and goes away. Um, so, you know, obviously the neighborhood is celebratory. They're all hugging. They're all excited that they were able to do this. Uh, Miguel and Rita have kind of a tender moment. Um, but then in yet another attempt at comedy, Miguel leans in for a kiss, thinking that Rita is kind of into him now. But Rita instantly stops him and says, whoa, what are you doing? Miguel says, oh, this isn't what's happening. And she's like, uh, no, buddy, no. Um, Ob uh, Bobby comes over and says, dude, she's 16, all right? She's way out of your league. And she really is. I mean, when you watch the movie, uh, you know, Miguel looks like a child and Rita looks like, you know, she's developed and older already. So blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She looks like at least middle teens, if not yeah, I think they, they, like they upper teens. Yeah, she's 16. Um, uh, Bobby actually says it in this scene, what are you doing, dude? She's 16. And her it, was, it was funny, though, because that's like that spot in the movie where like the underdog usually yeah. gets the kiss, and she's like, uh, no. <laughs> I, know, yeah, I know why it's funny. It just didn't make me laugh for whatever mm. reason. So there you go. Okay, so uh, we then go to the epitaph of the film. It is two weeks later. Um, um, we see Miguel walk by the new bodega. Uh, a new bodega has opened up in the spot of the old one. And outside the bodega is a large mural painted uh, in memory to Tony. Really nice painting of Tony. It looks really cool. And, and it's the block party. So basically the block party's going on. We got Chris Red on the turntables. Um, you know, we got all the kids uh, talking about you know, we're the defenders of the neighborhood now. Um, he even, Miguel even calls them the Daywalkers, which technically is incorrect because a Daywalker is still half vampire, but whatever. I'll, I'll let it slide. Um, and the four kids just have like a last funny moment before they walk out of camera shot. And then the last thing we see is our social media maven uh, walking up to the camera and saying, okay, this is my last post. And she basically just gives a warning to anybody who wants to come into the Bronx trying to take it over. You, you got to deal with all, uh, all of us, blah, blah, blah. And the movie fades out to the whole neighborhood dancing in the block party, everybody having a good time. And we go to credits. And that is Vampires vs. the Bronx 2020. <laughs> Bronx is saved for now. Yes. Uh, until the werewolves show up. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I'm so looking forward to that one. Werewolves versus the Bronx now? Come on. Don't make me watch another one, damn it. <laughs> um, you know, I've said a lot of negative things about this movie because ultimately it doesn't work for me. But it's not a bad movie. I'm not going to classify this as a terrible movie. I've already said it's very well made. I've already said that the performances are all really good. If, if you can shut off your brain and get by all of the cliche stuff, all of the rehashed comedy, all of the homages, if that all works for you, then you might like this movie legitimately. Um, ultimately, the, the main thing that I walk away from this movie feeling is that I'm not the target audience for this movie. I'm not young enough. 
Um, I'm definitely not, um, I, I don't want to say ignorant, but maybe kind of a beginner with vampire lore. You know, obviously, as all three of us on this show are older, we've all been watching horror movies our whole lives. The vampire, the quote-unquote vampire stuff in this movie does come off as cliche. We've all seen it before. But like I said, um, the Bronx aesthetic might work for some people. The fact that it's minority kids, um, you know, because like I said, this is kind of Goonies meets the Losers Club against vampires, which I wish it was more like Goonies because Goonies is a family movie that has brilliant writing. I think the writing in Goonies is amazing. But um, yeah, here it just doesn't cut it for me. But again, if you're not looking for that, like Don mentioned earlier, if you're just looking for a good time, maybe a movie to introduce your kids to vampire lore, this is probably a pretty good one to go with. That's it from yeah. me. I I will agree with all that. It's there's an audience for this one, so hopefully the audience that it's for finds it. I mean, it's on Netflix, so it shouldn't be that hard to find, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it, it is October, so it's probably that type of year where you're going to get a lot more casual horror fans oh, yeah. checking it out. And maybe it'll go over with the casual crowd, like too. So uh, it might, yeah, it might. Like I said, I, I just know I'm not the audience for this, so I, literally 15 minutes into the movie, I knew it wasn't a movie for me, but obviously I powered through it. We got to do the review, and the third act did save it a little bit for me. There was some decent action. I totally forgot to mention my favorite kill in the movie. Um, uh, basically, when they're in the courthouse, Luis pulls out that body of Christ, the wafer, and he, he does end up sticking it in one of the vampire's mouths. And the vampire bursts into flames from his mouth first and then outward. I thought that was a pretty cool vampire kill. The only one in the movie that I can really call kind of original, I guess. I mean, like I said, the stakes dipped in holy water is cool, but there's still just stakes to the heart. Uh, kills, you know, ultimately. But that, that, uh, that um, what do you call it, the Eucharist wafer in the vampire mouth I thought was pretty cool. So, like I said, there's a couple of things that this movie did kind of well. I like the fact that Method Man's weapon in the neighborhood scene towards the end was basically a large halberd with a cross on top of it that ended up burning Vivian on her forehead. So that was kind of cool. Like I said, there's not... It's not like there's nothing in this movie for hardcore horror fans to enjoy. I just think you need to be prepared for what you're going into. And... Honestly, you kind of need to turn your brain off because, like I said, if you're a fan of crisp writing like I am, this movie's not for you. But if you can get by all that, if you can get by the tropes, get by the writing, I think, uh, you know, a family of burgeoning horror fans would probably really enjoy this one. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I don't have all much right. else, so. <laughs> yeah. Well. We had a nice, spirited discussion on this one, so uh, I guess listeners, if you got through the whole episode, haven't seen it yet, hopefully you are equipped with what you need to make a decision for yourself. So I guess with that, we will wrap up this episode of Fresh Cuts. But uh, Oh, and you know what? Out, before before oh. we actually go, I did want to say one last thing. And it's only because IMDb agrees with me. Uh, unfortunately, Vampires vs. Bronx is holding a 4.7 currently. 
on IMDb. So it, it just feels nice to know that the community kind of agrees with me. Maybe not everybody, but at least a good chunk of them. Because that's probably the rating I would give this movie, like a five or a six. Because like I said, it's, it's well made. There are good qualities to it. It just doesn't really work for me as a vampire, as a quote-unquote vampire movie. But again, I mean, I definitely like it more than you, but I think six would be fair, like between a five and a six. Like to me, it's it's, yeah. it's it's nothing that like I would personally go back to like over and over. So, I mean, I think that's too like the nuance or the nuance in number ratings is like. I think sometimes people can have like a similar number rating, but like when you listen to their actual critiques or reviews, they have lots of different things to say on it. But no, and, and I definitely understand that I'm kind of a downer when it comes to these reviews. I tend to harp more on the negative because I I want I want our listeners to know what I didn't like about the film. Just on the off chance that we kind of share the same opinions, maybe I'll save them an hour and twenty five minutes of their life, or you know, maybe you usually disagree with me and you're running out to Netflix right now to watch Vampires vs. the Bronx. That's just as valid. Um, like I said, ultimately, it's just not a movie for me. Yeah, and I think, too, with, like, a lot of times with our Fresh Cuts episodes, because we're reviewing movies so close to uh, when they have released that we don't often have, like, tons of opinions of, like, our fellow colleagues to go by yet anyway. Yep. Other, uh, you did quote IMDb, but of course, those are anonymous, or at least people we don't know, so we have no idea. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I think I heard like our not heard, but saw a couple reactions on social media as of our recording, but not much. My, you know, so many people are busy with like their specific October watching that uh, who knows? It, it might plus, be a couple I mean- weeks. Adult horror fans who don't have children, if they watch this trailer, I can't imagine it's something that's going to drive them to go watch it. Um, Especially in October. That's the thing. October is a great month for horror films, especially for releasing new stuff for us to consume. But, like I said, with this movie, it's going to be families that are going to be really enjoying this. Not to say that there's no adults out there that can enjoy this movie. Don obviously likes it. So, um, I just think that yeah, way to give that a high recommendation. <laughs> but, like I said, with the season and with the amount of movies that are going to be coming out this, this month, especially with the uh, movie theaters closed, and, uh, you know, um, if anybody doesn't know, Mark Nato from the Horror Cast actually put out a post on Facebook recently, and there's, like, something like 40 new horror movies being released. I thought that was Lloyd that did it. Oh, yeah, you're right. It was Lloyd. It was Lloyd. Yeah, because I, yeah, I thought That's, Jason did it. Yep, you're probably right. I, I know Mark Nato used to do that, but I, I wasn't sure if it was him or not. Mm-hmm. Plus, Jason Lloyd and Mark Nato look a lot alike. <laughs> I don't know if you've <laughs> ever seen them. They look a lot alike. <laughs> I've seen Lloyd. I don't know if I've ever seen Mark Nato. Think of, uh, think of okay, Mark Nato would be a slightly heavier Jason Lloyd with a little less facial hair. Okay. That's Mark Nato. Yeah. <laughs> all right well uh, with that uh venom what do you have any new episodes uh of anything out lately um let's see uh well last night uh as it turns out i had a guest spot on don's new show the bay of blood um we looked at 
we basically did a Lovecraft uh, spectacular where we looked at four H.P. Lovecraft or four films inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's writings. Uh, we looked at From Beyond, um, let's see, From Beyond, The Resurrected, The Call of Cthulhu, and The Color Out of Space. Um, that should be out hopefully either later this week or maybe early next week. On the Knowing new... their schedule, it'll be about a month. <laughs> <laughs> Do they have any other shows in the can or is that it? Um, I've recorded three episodes with them that are not out yet. Let's oh, just okay. That. So, yeah, we're going to be waiting for this one. <laughs> Hopefully it's out by Halloween, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, check that out. That was a fun show. It was actually a, a much quicker than I thought it would be. I thought we were going to be there for, like, five hours. But You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Don, for taking control. That is awesome. Um, but, yeah, uh, so you can check that out, hopefully, uh, soon on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. Um, as far as No More Room in Hell, obviously we, we had our second werewolf special out a couple of weeks ago. Um, our big episode 25 is going to be uh, recording, I believe, this coming Sunday, isn't it? It's either this Sunday or next Sunday, Mike, right? Yeah, it's one of the two. Yeah, so uh, I know we're looking at some Asian cinema. I, uh, I know we're looking at Executive Panda. I forget what the other movie is. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be looking at some Asian stuff for Derek's picks as, uh, Derek and Don are both, uh, Asian cinema aficionados. So, uh, that should be a fun show for our, it'll be both, uh, monumental cause it's our 25th episode and it will be our first episode on the new dark discussions podcast network. We did say goodbye to the horophilia network on the last full episode with Jamie and Brian Sammons. So look out for that. Um, and then as far as my other shows go, In the Mic of Madness, unfortunately, is still on a fairly extended hiatus while Rebecca handles all her independent horror film projects that she's working on. And it's not horror okay. Uh, we recorded an episode last week where we looked at the 1983 movie Joysticks. Oh, man. Um, for those who don't know, I had a heart attack two years ago, and that hurt really bad, but it hurt a fraction of what watching joysticks hurt. So, yeah, go figure. Um, it was an interesting commentary, because I think I actually cried at one point. <laughs> my br I could feel my brain melting from watching that movie. And I know there's a lot of fans of that movie out there. You know, it's, it's one of those, if you don't know what joysticks is, it's one of those uh, teen sex romps from the 80s, but obviously this one is based around an arcade, hence the name Joysticks. Um, it stars Joe Don Baker as the main villain, the guy who's trying to shut down the arcade. It's just such a bad movie that I, I literally felt the life draining from my body <laughs> as I'm watching it. So, um, But on the next episode, we're going to bounce back. Or we're going to go back to not schlocky movies. Um, you know, obviously with It's Not Horror, we like to look at more fun movies, um, either schlock or like sex romps or, you know, um, gladiator movies, just whatever random shit. I tend to try to bring um, more cinematic um, gems, maybe unseen gems or forgotten gems. Um, um, the last time I had a pick, I brought the John Woo movie A Better Tomorrow from 1986 it was everyone's first time watch, and we all had an absolute blast. It was a great movie, really good story, great action, great acting, great everything. It's just a solid movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And then on the next episode, which is once again my pick, we're going to be looking at the 1981 
action crime thriller starring Sylvester Stallone, Rucker Hauer, Billy D. Williams, and Lindsay Wagner. That is, of course, Nighthawks. Anyone who hasn't seen Nighthawks, please do yourself a service and check out this movie. It's from 1981. Um, it, it Obviously, it's from it's after the first couple of Rocky movies, but before Sylvester Stallone blew up with stuff like Rambo and, you know, the other uh, action movies that he was doing in the 80s. It was actually before the first Rambo, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I said. Uh, it, was, it was. No, before. but I'm saying is, I know, I know he did Rocky 1 and 2 first, but I mean, did... Was Rambo 1 actually released before or after? After. Oh. That's what I mean. This is before he became popular as Rambo. Because, I mean, obviously he won an Oscar for Rocky. Um, he, he garnered a lot of critical acclaim for the first two Rocky movies. But he didn't really become a huge action star until that first Blood movie. Um, and, and you could even maybe make the argument for the second one, for Rambo. Because I remember that's when he just blew up. Like, he was like Mr. Action Star. Um, so yeah, um, Nighthawks is actually before Rambo, so it's it's kind of just one of his early action movies. Um, Rucker Hauer plays a terrorist named Wolfgar. One of my favorite Rucker Hauer performances. He's fucking terrifying as a terrorist in that movie. No pun intended. Um, so yeah, that'll be the next episode of It's Not Horror Okay. Uh, that'll be recording next week and will be available on the network the following week after that. And uh, I think that's all I have for me. All right. How about you, Don? Back on the horse anywhere else? Um, well, Venom took my thunder with uh, Bay of Blood. Because, um, uh, yeah, um, it was like I was saying, there's at least three episodes that I've done with them that have not been released yet. And I'm sure that there's a couple of others because they keep sending me um, a chat request when they're about to record, even though I can't make it. Mm-hmm. So I still get notifications when they're getting together. So, um, yeah, uh, like Venom said, we recorded a uh, Lovecraft Spectacular last night um, that I were recording this. And uh, again, you know, from beyond resurrected um, Call of Cthulhu and Colorado Space. Um, from beyond was from the first two were rewatches, although both of them had special conditions that I I go into on the show. The other two were first time watches. And uh, despite the fact that I have pretty contentious feelings, it was a lot of fun with that one. So um, yeah, whenever that drops or any of the other shows on that feed, um, like I said, I've recorded at least three episodes with them that have not come out yet. So I mean, it's like I was always saying, you know, we're just waiting on him to get back to a normal schedule. So I don't know where those episodes are, or what we're doing, but um, be on the lookout. Other than that, Underwater Kaiju is on hiatus for an indefinite amount of time. Um, just, you know, stuff going on there that no need to really get into. But yeah, beyond that, just uh, here in uh, the Bay of Blood. All right, cool. As far as I go, it's been pretty light. Just fresh cuts and no more room in hell. So uh, just concentrating on keeping those steady. I'm sure guest appearances will come up, and I'll I'll do them. But for now, um, that's just got my own stuff going on. So that's it. Um, what are we looking at for next episode? Any idea, Venom? No idea. <laughs> 
I know 12 Hour Shift released this week. I think there's more stuff headed to Shutter and Netflix by the end of the week. Yeah, Hulu. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Hulu I was gonna say Monster the. Hulu. I was gonna say that. No, I thought Books Books of Blood was coming out, or is that a series? That's a TV show, yeah. Oh, I thought it was a movie. Nope, series. Oh. I'm still excited for it. I love Clive Barker, so I'm ready. Uh, yeah. As far as what we're doing next week, Mike, your guess is as good as mine. I'm okay with 12-hour shift, though I haven't heard the greatest things about 12-hour shift, but whatever. I tend uh, I want to judge everything for myself anyway. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I have the extra time and I don't get, like, surprise stuff going on that takes time, maybe I'll, like, try to watch, you know, a few 2020 things and then get with you and see what we want to do, but, but yeah, there's, um, there's plenty go, of stuff to choose from. We can look at that list that Lloyd um, posted and see if there's something there. Yeah, we can that wouldn't, do that. That wouldn't be a bad thing, just to keep that as a refresher for October at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, there's a plethora of 2020 stuff we haven't looked at, even if it's a couple of weeks old. But, I mean, it is October, and I was just sitting here talking about all the releases we're getting, so it shouldn't be hard to find something... Yeah. Really, really fresh. No pun intended. But yeah, I could. Uh, I'm sure there, there'll be stuff out there. But uh, like I said, I'm okay with 12-hour shift or whatever we decide on. Um, we'll figure it out. And if I go back and watch the Binding and it's better than uh, Vampires vs. Bronx, we're gonna have words. <laughs> well, then, there's then a backstory to that that the listeners have no idea about, but we'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, you. <laughs> I, at this point, I, I'm like, well, you might think it's better, but, <laughs> but yeah, how do we rectify that if one of us thinks it's better and one of us doesn't? But uh, we'll figure that out. Maybe we'll hash that out on No More Room in Hell <laughs> as like a sidebar. Mm. But uh, anyways, that's going to wrap up this episode. Don, welcome back as always. Thank you um, for having me. And yep, with that said, we will get out of here. So uh, let's say goodnight to our listener. Later. Adios. Peace.